head in that deep sea diving suit up against the hull of the submarine and just was still and listened. And eventually, he could hear a quiet tapping. And over time, uh, as he waited and listened, it became clear that the tappings had a little bit of an order. And as he listened even more, it was the dots and dashes of Morse code. And slowly, 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 a repeating message came through. And it was simply, is there any hope? And I think that's kind of the cry of humanity when we're in trouble. I mean, we're not sinking in a sub. Most of us are not in a life and death struggle today. But whenever we have trouble and whenever there's things in our life that come against us or things uh, that we're struggling with, we wonder if there's hope. And underneath this psalm in Psalm 124, we're going to see that there is hope that runs underneath it all and that there's a hope within some gratitude and that David actually has a deep gratitude for what God has done. Now, this is one of only four psalms in uh, the Psalms of Ascent, which is a mini songbook in the middle of the book of Psalms that was meant to be sung on the way to feasts and festivals by the Israelite people. And so they would go through an order of these songs often and, and sing them, sometimes out of order. And they were meant to evoke different emotions and help them focus on different themes as they prepared their hearts to go gather with people to worship. And I've been really impressed. I said to Stephanie just this week um, that sometimes, uh, like I have favorite psalms. You maybe have favorite psalms as well. And some of these psalms aren't my favorite psalms. And so some of them I'm not all that familiar with. Imagine that, a pastor who doesn't have the whole Bible memorized. And so I come across these psalms and sometimes I think, well, you know, it's God's word, it's going to be good, but it's not a favorite, so I don't have high hopes for it being this really deep teaching, you know, like something we're going to latch on to. But I've been impressed every week I can come and look at these Psalms and say, man, there's something here I didn't know before. And I'm so glad that God had David and others write these and that they're there for the reason to recount them again and again and again. And so underneath this, David is going to have us look back to look forward. He looks back at the ways God has protected and been with him and the Israelite people, and he looks forward to what God will do again. We sang that this morning uh, a few different ways in a few different songs. And so just picture with me for a moment that you're on the way to Jerusalem. You live somewhere in Israel. It's a journey of a few days. And on the road with you are several others. Several others making the same journey. Maybe you know them, maybe you don't, but they're your Uh, they're your people. There are other people who follow God as well. And so you're singing similar songs and you're thinking similar things. You've all come from different places. You've all got different amounts of trouble in your life. But you're going with one singular focus to to worship God. And it's kind of like what we do on Sunday mornings and when we gather. We all come from different lives. We've got different troubles. We've got different things that we're up against and dealing with. But as we come, there's this sense that we can see how God has been working so that we can continue to trust him now. And from beginning uh, really to end, David has this whole theme of hope. And he starts out with this, with this question of, you know, what if God hadn't rescued us? So he's got this deep sense of gratitude that as a person, as a king, and as a nation, God has done some things. And probably in their minds as they're singing, they're thinking things like, 
what we saw on the screen of, you know, the rescue from Egypt. God used Moses to rescue the people out of slavery. And, and then they might look back to other times um, when God had protected them, say, from surrounding nations and war. Or maybe at, at different times after the writing of this psalm, as they sung it year after year, <clears throat> maybe they're looking back and remembering how God had rescued them from exile. How they disobeyed God and God had allowed the Assyrians or the Babylonians to take them away from their homeland for a while and now they've returned. And So regardless of the era that they're singing this in, they're able to look back. And the real question that um, I want to ask you is, what has God done in your life? So if we're going to take this and, and apply this, today I'm going to ask a number of questions beyond even what David is asking. And as we start, that's the question. What has God done in your life? How has he rescued you? How has he been with you? How has he saved you? What has he done in your life? Have that in your heart as we consider this psalm. Now, the psalm is broken up into um, different segments, and there's two main areas of evil that David's going to talk about and have his people sing about. One is about oppression, and one is temptation. So oppression are things that come against you. They're obvious. Everyone knows it. You know it. It's often an external thing. And when he's talking, it's about other people. So either people against him as a king or people against him as, uh, against them as a nation. And then he talks about temptation. And these are things that come against you that aren't as obvious. Sometimes they sit in your heart. Sometimes it's secret things. Sometimes it's quiet struggles. And so we've got these overt things that come against us. And we've got these hidden things that come against us. And in the midst of these, he's going to talk about four different metaphors, four different metaphors, two in each section to help us look at these things that come against us and how we can have confidence in God. And he talks about giants, and he talks about floods, he talks about wild beasts, and he talks about traps. And so from start to finish, David urges them to know, like know that they know, that God is the only source of hope that they need. So as we uh, begin to read this psalm this morning, be thinking of that question, what has God done in my life? And in fact, that's where David has us start. So Psalm 124, verse 1, I'm reading from the NLT version. Uh, your, your Bible might have this as a heading, a song of pilgrims ascending to Jerusalem, a psalm of David. What if the Lord had not been on our side? Let all Israel repeat, what if the Lord had not been on our side when people attacked us? Some versions say it like this, but if not for the Lord, but if not for the Lord, or but for the Lord. Um, what would their history as an Israelite people, what would their history look like if God hadn't rescued them out of slavery, if God hadn't protected them in the wilderness, if God hadn't protected them against attacking nations, if God didn't bring them back after their discipline? and their punishment. But there's a sense personally too, like what if, what if God wasn't here? And I'm sure David is thinking of that absolutely. There's a song that came out a number of years ago by a, a worship band called Delirious. Some of you will know that, some of you won't. If you're unfamiliar with them, it's, it's the same group and, and author who wrote, um, Did You uh, Hear the Mountains Tremble? That might be a song you recognize. One that you may not be familiar with that they wrote that really became important to me around the season it was written was, um, uh, what would I have done? And the chorus says this, what would I have done? What would I have done if it wasn't for Jesus? 
And what would I have become if it wasn't for Jesus? What would I have done? What would I have done if it wasn't for you? And so David is asking us to do that. And imagine, <clears throat> imagine walking to Jerusalem and, and other people are along the road. And someone calls out, you know, like, what would I have done if it wasn't for Jesus? That's a modern interpretation. But back then, just simply would sing out, what if the Lord had not been on our side? And then everyone around you takes up, what if the Lord had not been on our side and these enemies attacked us? And so there's this sense of a kind of a camp repeat after me song. And when you hear repetition in the Bible, you have to know it's not just a literary device. It mattered to the Hebrew people. When there's repetition in the Bible, it brings greater emphasis. And when you hear things three times, like holy, holy, holy is the Lord, that's the same as saying, I'm saying this phrase infinitely. I'm just saying it again and again and again and again. It's that important. So this is a repetition twice. So David really wants them to know that they should be considering, what if God hadn't been there in my life? Now, that might not be a question that you have asked yourself before. Maybe you haven't asked that, uh, you, know, what if, you know, what if God wasn't there for me? It's something that I've uh, actually considered repeatedly in my life. And I often uh, think not by way of sense of pride, like I'm a pastor and have the family I have and the friends I have and the life I have because I've made something of myself. It's because I look back and I see myself as a kid and a teen uh, in this church and I see others in youth group and other families and our lives on similar trajectories but eventually many others deserting God. Many others making choices, some of the same choices I made, some of the same mistakes I made. And yet, here I am, not by any work of my own. And it's not about being a pastor, it's about being still connected to Jesus, still choosing him, and him still choosing me. And, and I'm very humbled by that. Where would I be without Jesus? And, and I often think of that. And I look at the others I grew up with and where they're at, the choices they made, uh, some brokenness, relationship stuff, the mess that some of them are in. And I have no idea why God's been so gracious. But I know that I am where I am by God's grace. And so I think about this. And so for David to say, as you're coming to worship, as you're gathering with others, consider this. What would have happened if the Lord wasn't on my side. And so I'll ask you this question. I'm going to ask a, a series of questions. Um, what would you have done if it wasn't for Jesus? What would you have done if it wasn't for Jesus? And then we get into the first of the big areas of evil, and that's the oppression. And he's going to talk about the ideas of disaster and drowning. So Psalm 124, verse 3. They would have swallowed us alive. So talking about the people who are against the nation or people against David. They would have swallowed us alive in their burning anger. The waters would have engulfed us. A torrent would have overwhelmed us. Yes, the raging waters of their fury would have overwhelmed our very lives. So I, I, I like to think of the first metaphor as giants. So the word giant isn't found in the Hebrew. It's not found in our English translation. But remember, it's David writing this. And he says, they, the people who've been against us, both as a nation and me as a person, they could have swallowed us whole in their burning anger. Who's big enough to swallow you? Like a giant giant. Now, he may have thought back to Goliath, who wasn't quite big enough to swallow him, but was big enough to de completely defeat him. And so, 
he's using a bit of hyperbole, a bit of exaggeration to make his point here. But he's saying some people are so angry with you that it's like they could swallow you whole. Have you ever had that? You ever had someone so angry with you? Their anger burns so much they just, they could eat you alive. And so David is saying that it's like that. Do you know that some people are so angry with God in their life that they take it out on God's people? That's what David's saying. He's ruling Israel, and Israel is God's representatives. And some nations and some people hated God so much they took it out on him. Some people within Israel hated God so much that they took it out on him. And so it was someone or something that could have completely defeated so here's my question. What or who in your life could completely defeat you? What or who in your life could completely swallow you whole? If they actually had their way, they're so angry, you're, you're at odds with them. What or who could completely defeat you? And then he takes this uh, imagery of being swallowed whole, and he just turns that word swallow, being swallowed up, and turns it towards a flood. In the same way you can be swallowed alive, you can be swallowed up by the raging sea. And the floodwaters come up and take you under and they swallow you. And so he uses this common phrasing for two different metaphors. The neat thing about uh, this term in Hebrew is it doesn't mean to be overwhelmed by water, even though he's talking about water. It actually means to come up over our souls. So he's saying... You could be swallowed, you could be overwhelmed by the flood. It's to come up over your soul. Something that could alter your very life, your very existence, and hurt you to the core, your soul. And he says, there are people and things that come against you that can overwhelm you. Now, the Hebrew term for coming over our souls has to do with a life and death struggle. And in that particular era of the world, and where David left, uh, lived, it was very much for Israel and for David, literally life and death. Okay, so he had people chasing him, wanting to kill him. They had nations surrounding them who wanted to kill them physically. I'm going to guess, and I'm hoping, that no one watching or listening this morning is in a life or death struggle against someone. Someone actually wants to take your life. Uh, we tend to be a little more civilized in Canada, but there's many parts of the world where this is the reality. But even though you may not have someone physically against you, something physically against you, there are things that come up in your life that threaten to overwhelm you. The two that I can think of most are depression and anxiety in our culture. These are things that come over you in waves without your doing. And they come at you and you're overwhelmed. And oftentimes you don't know what to do. You're completely engulfed and you feel as if your very life is on the line, and sometimes it is. And so whether it's someone, something, whether it's some emotional struggle you're having, uh, the question I want you to consider is what threatens to overwhelm you? What threatens to overwhelm you? David's having us look back and think about how God has been with us, but what are the things that have come against us? What are the things that threaten to defeat you? What are the things that threaten to overwhelm you? And then he changes gears a little bit, and he moves from talking about oppression and about giants and floods, and he changes the way he talks about looking back, and he's looking forward at the same time. Verse 6 and 7 say this, 
praise to the Lord who did not let their teeth tear us apart. We escaped like a bird from a hunter's trap. The trap is broken and we are free. It's kind of a cool transition. So he's now talking about wild beasts and traps. So again, he doesn't specifically say it's wild beasts, but what else is going to tear at you with their teeth? And he says, things have come against us and have bit at us and have hurt us. They've wounded us, but God was there to keep us from being completely torn apart. Now, I'm not going to talk too much this morning about the difference between hurt and harm, that God sometimes allows us to be hurt, but he won't let us be harmed. If you want to find out more about that, rewind a few weeks to Psalm 120, the very first of the Psalms of Ascent. I talk about that more, and so does the author. But this is that sense that going through life, you're going to have hurts. There's going to be scars. God, in his goodness and his grace, doesn't sit back helplessly, but he allows things to happen to us, in part because we're not in the place yet where there's no evil. There's a place coming, new heaven, new earth, when Jesus comes and makes things new, all things new, resurrects us, new heaven, new earth, we call it heaven, where there's no evil, no sin, it's done away with completely. There's not the possibility, but in this sinful, evil world, there's always the possibility of evil and hurt. And so he says, these things are like wild beasts. These people are like wild beasts. They come at me with their teeth. And they've wounded me, but they've not torn me apart because God has protected me. Paul says the same thing in the New Testament, 2 Corinthians 4. We are pressed on every side by troubles, but we're not crushed. We're perplexed, but not driven to despair. We are hunted down, but never abandoned by God. We get knocked down, but we're not destroyed. We are weak. We're in danger. We have stuff happen to us that's horrible and awful. And God is not standing silently by. He's waiting for us to call out so he can walk with us through the trouble. Here's the thing. I'll just give you my theory. I think if we never had trouble in our lives, we wouldn't have much need for God. And we could do things on our own quite nice. In fact, I think that's a scheme and a tool of the enemy. When we're most blessed and, you know, things are going our way, we often drift from God. There are other people who see that trouble comes our way and we say, God, if you're all-powerful, why wouldn't you limit that? If I were all-powerful, I wouldn't let anyone I love have anything bad happen to them. And while that is the truth, we're not taking the whole picture into focus. David's talking about people doing evil to him. And if God stops evil people from doing evil, God stops being a gracious God. There are times he stands in. There are times he steps in. There are times he limits. But more often than not, God will not take over the free will of a person, even when they're choosing something horrible. But he is there in the mess. And he is there to pick up the pieces. And he is there to redeem and help. I've been bitten I've been wounded, but I've not been torn apart because God has been with me. And the reason he's saying that is because he changes the way he speaks. He's not now saying, what would I have done? Like, what would it have been like in my life if God didn't do this thing? Now he says something amazing. He said, praise God because. So I'm going to praise God because I see how he's been active. I praise God because I went through these troubles 
and he was with me, and I didn't get torn limb from limb. And so he turns to worship. Worship's an important thing. What we did this morning is not the fullness of worship, although it was really, really good. Worship is not just singing. It's simply expressing your heart to God and being honest with him. And so David turns to worship. And his worship is deeper and more meaningful. Why? Because he never had trouble? No. It's the exact opposite. Your worship is deeper and more meaningful when you've been through trouble, come out the other side and seen how God's carried you. Is your worship deeper that way? Is your worship deeper because God has protected you? Is your worship deeper because God has protected you? Now, in our dining room, we have, uh, I had a picture made of uh, lyrics of a worship song that were incredibly meaningful and difficult time in our life. In my office, I have a picture with words from a worship song that was incredibly important during a difficult time in my life. And when I worship, if I'm uh, aware of this, and if I set my heart in tune with this, my worship is deeper because I remember all the things I've been through and how God has carried me. I've been bit, I've been scarred, but God didn't let me be torn limb from limb. And that's what David's saying. As they're walking, as they're going to worship, he's saying, let's all praise God because we've all got some hurts, we've all got some wounds, we've all got some stuff we wish didn't happen. But when we can see God's hand in it, he's kept us from being utterly ruined. So is your worship deeper because God has protected you? It should, should be. And then he talks about something completely different than all of these things. A lot of the things in oppression and, and uh, can be external. But then he talks about traps and snares. And I'm glad he does. Because as they're singing and as we're considering this, there are these two sides of things that come against us. These two evils, right? There are the things that come against us, right? And there are the things that trap us or seek to entrap us. Now, David's talking about a trap or a snare for a bird or a small animal. And that, you know, we, this trap was set for us, but the hunter didn't succeed, and that God has set us free. And so we're thankful for that. Um, I'm not a hunter, and I certainly haven't hunted small animals or birds in an ancient way. So I had to kind of look up, what is a trap and what is a snare, and how does it work? There's all sorts of different kinds, and depending on the culture or the era of the earth, they look a little bit different, but they have these similarities. They either involve a rope, and some sticks and bait, or a kind of a net or cage and sticks and bait. And to give you an idea of this, if you've ever seen someone try and be funny, maybe your kids did this, my kids did this, and they set up like a laundry basket with a stick. So there's like a stick, and there's a laundry basket, and there's something inside the laundry basket, and if you go to get it, you knock over the stick, and the cage falls down, and then they're trapped. Same thing. With the rope, it's the same thing. The bird goes to get the bait and something happens to the stick and it falls over and it tightens the rope around the claw of the bird. And so it's not this lethal, horrible trap. It's just very basic. And the crazy thing about these snares and these traps are you can see them. Like they're really, really easy to spot. And you might think, how on earth is a, is a, is a rabbit or a bird or something small simple enough to, to fall for this, but they, they do. 
because their eyes are on something else. They're just looking at the bait. And so David is saying, you know, as we look back, we can see that there have been these traps set for us. And God has allowed us and helped us to be free from those things. Again, Paul says the same thing in the New Testament in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 10. If you think you are standing strong, be careful not to fall. The temptations in your life are no different than what others experience. So we can see them. Everyone has different kinds of temptation, but they're all really the same. And God is faithful. He will not allow the temptation to be more than you can stand okay, uh, with his help. But on your own, they are more than you can stand because we get entrapped by them. When you're tempted, he will show you a way out so you can endure. Temptations, traps, snares, schemes of the enemy are really simple to see. The Bible is full of them. Warnings. You know, a lot of people think the Bible is just full of, um, uh, like, rules and regulations, things to keep us from the good stuff. Like, okay, you can't do this, and you can't do this, and Christians don't do this, and Christians are boring because of this, and they don't watch this, and they don't do this in life, and they try all this stuff. That is not what God's doing at all. Here's the most basic definition of sin you can ever have. Sin is going after a good thing in the wrong way or the wrong time. Sin is always attractive because it's a good thing. It's something God wants us to have on some basic level. I'm not talking about the thing itself, but like if you're going after a relationship or, or pleasure or money or whatever it is, fulfillment, satisfaction, whatever it may be, it's a good thing. God has a good way for you to experience that. But sin is when we go about it in a way other than God has planned for us. And the reason he says to beware of these things and to stay away from sin is so we don't get entrapped, ensnared, hurt, damaged, ripped apart to pieces, stuck. And here's the way it happens. There's two kinds of people. David talks about one. Paul talks about another. David's talking about the simple people who just, and they don't recognize the snare and the trap. They're tempted by sin, and they just kind of walk in eyes wide open and suddenly are entrapped. And the others that Paul talks about are the proud and the arrogant. Like, they see the danger, and they're like, not me. I'm better than that. I'm, I can handle it. Don't worry about it. I know where my limit is. But in both cases, eventually, people realize that they're in over their heads, and they have a secret they can't share. They have a habit they can't break. They have a relationship they shouldn't be in. They have something going on in their life they don't want others to know about. Or in, other, in order to continue that, they have to double down and say, no, 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 no. This isn't wrong. This is good because... But they're still entrapped. It's something they're stuck in that they can't get out of. So here's my question. What temptation easily entangles you? What temptation easily entangles you. Hebrews 12.1 talks about getting rid of or throwing off the sin that so easily entangles. I watched an interview with a deep sea uh, cave diver. For some reason, I've got illustrations about the sea today. So, deep sea cave diver, and they go diving in these caves that are hard to reach, way down deep, incredibly dangerous. This isn't like you jump off the boat with flippers and you took your little scuba test and you go down and see some fun fish and things. You go where there's no light, and you don't know where you are. It's hard to see. Uh, but some people like doing that. And in order to do that, there's two things you always have. 
One is a rope that goes from the boat and down. So in the darkness, if your light fails or if something happens, you can easily climb your way out. And second is a partner. You never go down alone. And this guy I was listening to an interview about, he said he went down with uh, another partner. They went down into this cave and the rope was down there and there and there. And his partner got a little bit entangled in the rope. No big deal, right? It's wrapped around. Easy to get out, easy to call a partner and say, hey, you know, like, come over here and you untangle, whether it's the tank or the arm or whatever. It was just, it was a simple thing to do. But because of the depth and because it's so dangerous, his partner panicked. And his partner started thrashing and rolling. And this little simple tangle ended up wrapping him up altogether. And the more he got entangled, the more he panicked. The more he panicked, the more he got entangled. And all this guy I was listening to the interview could do was swim as hard as he could, at least out of the reach of his partner. Because at that point, there was nothing he could do. And if at least one of them wanted to get out alive, he had to keep himself from the damage and the chaos. That's pretty bad. But that's a lot like what happens in life. We get a little bit entangled and we could have someone at church or someone we respect, someone who could gently help us to get out. We have God who can empower us, who shows us the way. You're not tempted beyond anything anyone else has. You're also not tempted beyond what you can bear in the Lord's power. He makes these snares easy. If you come across this bird snare, this like stick with a little rope and another little stick with bait on it, you know what it is, or, or like a basket and a stick. Like All of these things are easy to spot. We have a Bible full of warnings to say, keep away from these things, because when you get there, if you get entrapped, it's really bad, and you get entangled, and it can ruin days, weeks, months, years of your life before you can clamor your way back. And David's saying, like, God, you've been there through it all. Though temptations and trials and traps, though the schemes of the enemy are cunning, God, you give us the heads up so we can see, so we don't need to get in that. And then we get to the closing verse, which is actually my favorite. Verse 8. Our help is from the Lord who made heaven and earth. That might not seem groundbreaking or amazing, but when you take that in the context of the other Psalms of Ascent, we see the same thing again and again and again. Whether it's said, like, lift your eyes up beyond the hills or other help to God, it's this cry, this resounding song again and again. Our help is from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. It's a reminder uh, that whether it's oppression or temptations and traps, whether it's these giants or whether it's things that overwhelm us, these floods, whether it's wild things like wild animals, people or things that come against us to attack us, want to rip us to pieces, they're so angry with us, or whether it's something hidden, secret, a scheme of the enemy to ruin us. That God has been with us through it all. And if he's been with us through it all, he'll be with us still. And I think the overall thing that David is trying to communicate to us, that he wanted them to sing on the way to the temple, that he wants us to know in our hearts, is that God is the help you know, so we know this help. He's also the help you need. So God is the help you know, but he's the help you need. Why? Because he's the maker of heaven and earth. 
Now to us, we can read that and we can rattle that off and go home and eat whatever we're going to eat and away we go. God's the maker of heaven and earth. I know that. Great. Wonderful. To the Hebrew people saying that, that's a big deal. Because in their world, uh, not only were there as many varied ideas of creation as ours, I mean, these different cultures doubled down on who created it. And their God was central to their culture. God is central to our lives as well, but maybe not so for others around us. You know, they may have secular humanism, but it's, it's not quite the same. And for them, when they're saying this, they are putting all their eggs in the right basket. Essentially, what David is saying and having them sing is that you know, God is our, our, our rescue. He's our only help. And the reason why we can trust him to help us is because he made the heavens, all the things we see and don't understand, and the earth, all the things we touch and experience. God designed and made them all, and he's on my side. That's a pretty amazing thing. The God who made all this is for you. The God who made everything is on your side. He is for his people. Those who have believed in Jesus, those who have received offer of forgiveness, those who have decided to follow Jesus with their life. He's on your side. You're his child. You're his people. And whether it's oppression coming against you or temptation, he's been there with you. And so the way I want to end today is I'm going to invite you to, to stand. Come on and stand. I know. Sleepy. I don't want to stand. And we're not on the way to Jerusalem, but we're all on the path to somewhere. God is walking with us. And as a church family, we walk together. Whether you've been with us for 20 years or this is your first time joining us in person or online, you're part of us. And what I want to do is kind of reenact how the beginning of that psalm might have been for the pilgrims walking to Jerusalem. Now, I don't have a melody to it, so I'm not going to sing it, but I am going to say it. And what I say, I want you to repeat with all your heart and all your meaning. And this is the way it would have started. Someone would have called out, what if the Lord had not been on our side? Kid, I was okay. I was okay. I caught you off guard. You kind of had the words and you're reading it. But let's imagine we actually mean this, right? What if the Lord had not been on our side? But he is. Do you see that God is on your side and God is for you? As you consider your life, each moment you feel God has not been with you. He's been there. And as you're going through things today and in the future, each moment you wonder, God, why aren't you stopping this thing? You can have confidence that whether it's a giant or a flood or a wild beast or a temptation and a trap that's coming against you, God is for you and he will not let you be ruined while you stay close to him. And my prayer and my hope is that you will understand in the depths of your heart that God is the help you know, you know it, you can see it, you can look back, and that you'll still know that God is the help you need. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that in all of our troubles, 
Some of them we can see. Some of them others know about us. Some of them are just quiet in our hearts and nobody else is aware of but you. God, thank you for walking with your people. Thank you that you're the help we know. Thank you for the reminders of how you are faithful, even when we're faithless. And God, in this present moment and in the future, I pray that our hearts would be confident of your help, that we would look to you, reach out to you, not only because you made the heavens and earth, but because we are yours and you're for us. May that truth resound louder than the trouble around us, than the raging sea, than the things that could completely defeat us, than the traps we see set for us and feel powerless to win. May we see you above it all. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks so much for joining us this morning. Please leave the chairs set up and we hope you can join us again next week. Lord bless you as you go. Stay.